0: Welcome to Los Angeles, the fabled city of angels, home to palm trees, movie stars, Disneyland, and the American dream we know as Hollywood. It's a place of shadows and sunlight, myth and murder, and it's the historical home to more cranks, nutcases, killers, and lunatics than you'll find just about anywhere else in the country. And welcome to the new episode and new season of the American Hauntings podcast. Show is hosted and produced by Cody Beck, and it's written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. In the many weeks ahead in Season 5, we'll be delving into the history, mysteries, spirits, scandals, and sins of Hollywood, that glamorous bit of Los Angeles that's not so much a place these days, but a state of mind. Each new episode will reveal another sordid Hollywood tale of crime, corruption, murder, and, of course, ghosts. And they won't be for the faint of heart. So sit back, relax, make a cocktail, and get ready for the new season of American Hauntings. There are many dark and gruesome tales ahead, and we bet you'll be listening to a lot of these episodes with the lights on. Los Angeles, touted as the wonder city of the West, captured the imagination of the American public in the late 1800s and early 1900s in a way that no other place in the country had ever done before. It had the natural beauty of the mountains, the beaches and the orange groves. Its architecture was modern, borrowed or bizarre in ways that went beyond any Midwesterners imagination. It became the land of film stars, both real and imagined. There was Hollywood and Vine, showbiz mansions, movie premieres, nightclubs, and carefully designed facades that created a fantasy of a wonderland. There were kooks, nuts, cults, and cemeteries for pets. The downsides seemed few, but deadly. There were wildfires, earthquakes, and mudslides, but on the bright side, they reminded the residents that little here was permanent. There was a lack of history in LA, but there was also the chance to leave everything in the past behind and to reinvent and reimagine. And there was crime. The horrors visited on Los Angeles were just as real as in any other big city, but in a place that was larger than life, the crime seemed a little bigger and a bit more skewed. The murders, prostitution, gambling, and drugs, when filtered through pen, paper, and celluloid, became the noir that would make men like writers Raymond Chandler, stars, and actors like Humphrey Bogart famous. Almost from its founding, Los Angeles had a bad reputation. The once-sleepy Spanish mission had been stolen from its rightful Mexican owners during the American quest for Manifest Destiny, and soon, immigrants from the East were making a beeline for the West Coast. The Eastern newspapers promised sunshine, warm weather, easy living, and, of course, an elusive fortune that could be obtained in the California gold fields. But what many immigrants found instead was poverty and death. The majority of them returned home with nothing to show for their travels and hard work. And, well, many of them never returned home at all. By the mid-1800s, Los Angeles, dubbed the City of Angels by the original founders, was literally filled with murderers, thieves, and prostitutes. The streets were nothing more than rutted dirt paths where animals roamed and where garbage was dumped. With murders, robberies, and kidnappings commonplace, the primitive court system could only handle a small percentage of the cases filed by police officers, allowing scores of criminals to go free. This led to the formation of vigilante committees, which stepped in to take care of criminals on their own, often with the complete approval of the city's mayor. In 1854, the Los Angeles Rangers were formed and were financed by some of the city's leading judges, lawyers, and businessmen. There was also the Los Angeles Home Guard, another paramilitary group of bloodthirsty citizens and the feared El Monte Rangers, a group of Texas immigrants who specialized in killing Mexicans. Vigilantes were tasked with cleaning up the town. Suspects, Usually Mexicans were dragged from their homes, from jail cells, and even from churches, then beaten, horsewhipped, tortured, mutilated, castrated, and hanged from the nearest tree. In 1854 alone, 22 men were victims of one vigilante group or another. But One of the most shocking cases of vigilante justice in California took place in Los Angeles' Chinatown in 1871 and ended with the murders of at least 19 men. In the late 19th century, Chinese immigrants were competing with Mexicans for the hard labor and menial jobs that no one else in the city wanted. Racism ran rampant and the Chinese were unable to vote, own property, or run legitimate businesses. As a result, many of them were forced into prostitution, narcotics, and gambling to earn a living. By the 1860s, two rival gangs had established themselves among the Chinese, the Hong Hongchaos and the Yangs. Both groups kept their activities within the Chinese community, but managed to make city officials very nervous. In 1870, the chief of police began making regular raids on Chinatown, which only ratcheted up the tension being felt in the city. Finally, in 1871, these tensions exploded into a riot. No one knows for sure how it started, but one version claims that a Los Angeles police officer, Robert Thompson, went to issue a warrant to a Chinese gang member who worked in the Cale de los Negros. But rather than allow the warrant to be served, the gang member produced a gun and shot and killed the policeman. That in turn led to a chain reaction that ended with the slaughter of dozens of innocent men and women. Another version claimed that a drunken Chinese man began firing his gun and accidentally hit a white man. Within minutes, an inebriated and enraged mob swarmed through the streets, lynching, burning, stabbing, and beating any Asian they could get their hands on. However, historian Horace Bell cites a different reason for the riot, and probably a more accurate one. According to Bell, the police officer had been trying to steal the man's money, not arrest him. He knew the man had a large amount of money in his shop, and the cop was caught with his hand in the till and was shot. When word spread that Chinese, quote, gang members had shot a police officer, a mob formed at Chinatown. The shopkeeper tried to turn himself in, but it was no use. Bullets began to fly and all hell broke loose. Vigilantes from all over the city under the command of the chief of police descended on Chinatown and attacked every Asian they could find. There were 19 men found dead in the aftermath of the riot. A grand jury indicted 156 men for their parts in the massacre, but only six of them went to jail. A few days later, all six were released due to lack of evidence against them. It had mysteriously disappeared. This was the first charge of corruption leveled at Los Angeles city government, but it definitely would not be the last. Corrupt officials in a police department of dubious reputation would plague the image of Los Angeles for decades to come. In the early years of the 20th century, a new flock of immigrants arrived in LA, and many of the new rivals found plenty of sunshine in California, but not much else. Water, a necessary staple that was brought to the area under questionable circumstances and made millions for the privileged few, as we'll hear in our next episode, transformed the desert into a phony paradise of fake vegetation and fantasy architecture. Fortunes began to be made in oil and land, and as a matter of course, graft and petty crime became commonplace. The population explosion brought not only the upright citizens, but also the scam artists, con men, and nutcases who tried to take advantage of the rapid growth. To fill the subsequent voids, many newcomers joined clubs for the lonesome or sought solace with healers of the soul from evangelists to psychic mediums who comforted the lonely in exchange for their money. Like most other growing cities in the country, corruption and vice came with the territory, but Los Angeles was different. It was new and fresh, and the geography of the area, the automobile, and the glamour of Hollywood all combined to create a unique combination. Other cities had grown up around horse-drawn carriages, railroads, and trolley cars, but Los Angeles was truly born at the beginning of the automobile age. And with over 450 square miles of roads, the city had plenty of room to grow. The motor car was the principal form of transportation, and this created a boomtown mentality for new arrivals. And of all the reasons for the rapid growth, Hollywood was undoubtedly one of the biggest one. The mere mention of the name guaranteed readers for any newspaper in the nation. In just a few short years, thanks to stars like Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and many others, Hollywood managed to set itself apart from the rest of the world because everything there seemed larger than life. The city within a city had seemingly come from nowhere to become one of the most recognizable places on earth. In 1853, only a single adobe hut stood at the spot that would someday be Hollywood. By 1870, a farm community had started to flourish, and some believe the name of the community came from the ample stands of California holly that covered the hillsides with bright red berries each winter. But as with everything else in Hollywood, every legend has at least two versions, if not more. The name Hollywood, some say, was coined by H.J. Whiteley, the man considered the father of Hollywood. He and his wife Gigi allegedly came up with the name while on their honeymoon. Another version of the story involves real estate developer Harvey Wilcox, who bought up land for new homes. His wife Data met a woman on a train who mentioned that her Ohio summer home was called Hollywood. Data, who liked the name, gave it to the new development and it first appeared on Wilcox's map of the subdivision in 1887. But However the name started, it really became popular thanks to filmmaker Max Sennett, who created a low-cost subdivision called Hollywood Land when he came to California. The subdivision was later swallowed by the expansion of the city, but a version of the advertising sign that he had constructed remained. And it still remains, still watching over the film colony from the Hollywood Hills. Well, Hollywood began to thrive around 1900. With a post office, newspapers, hotel, two markets, and a population of about 500, it lay about seven miles east of Los Angeles, nestled in the fruit groves. Contact with the larger city was sparse in the early days. Only a single track streetcar connected the two and service was infrequent and took nearly two hours. The first section of the famous Hollywood Hotel, the first major hotel in the city, was opened in 1902. It was built by H.J. Whitely for the sole purpose of providing a place to stay for prospective clients who came to look at building lots among the living groves. The main street, Prospect Avenue, in town was a dusty dirt road at the time. While well, Holly was officially incorporated in 1903, but it was still little more than a country town. Among the town ordinances at the time was one that banned the sale of liquor, except by pharmacists, and one that prevented ranchers from driving cattle through the streets, except in herds of 200 or less. In 1904, a new trolley car track running from Los Angeles to Hollywood was open, and it drastically cut down the amount of time needed to get to LA and opened the city to even greater development. Well, by 1910, because of an ongoing struggle to secure an adequate water supply, Hollywood voted to be annexed by the city of Los Angeles. The large city had managed to get its own water supply from the Owens Valley, and so Hollywood gained both water and a sewer system too. And its new Main Street gained a new name, Hollywood Boulevard. Around this same time, America's fledgling motion picture industry discovered Hollywood. The industry had started out on the East Coast, but ran into trouble because of the stringent copyright rules that were being imposed on artists by a fanatically greedy inventor named Thomas Edison. Well, the colony first fled to Chicago, but that wasn't far enough from Edison's control. Besides that, the harsh winter weather in the Windy City soon had directors and performers looking west towards sunny Los Angeles. In early 1910, the Biograph Company sent director D.W. Griffith to California with his crew and acting troupe, consisting of Blanche Sweet, Lillian Gish, Mary Pickford, Lionel Barrymore, and others. They started filming on a vacant lot in downtown Los Angeles. The company began looking for other locations and traveled a few miles north to the small community of Hollywood. Griffith then filmed his first movie in Hollywood called In Old California, a melodrama that was set in Mexican California in the 1800s. The company stayed there for months and made several films before returning east, but Biograph and all the rest would soon be back. The first movie studio to be established in Hollywood was the New Jersey-based Centaur Company, which thought California would be perfect for low-budget westerns. They rented an empty roadhouse on Sunset Boulevard and converted it into a movie studio in October 1911. It was dubbed Nestor Studios, after the name of the western branch of their company. The first feature film made in a Hollywood studio was called The Squaw Man, directed by Cecil B. DeMille in 1914. By 1915 the majority of American films were being produced in Hollywood and the city became a household word almost overnight. Hollywood began to set itself apart from the rest of the world and soon residents began believing their own press that everything there really was, as we've already said, larger than life. Hollywood became a place where dreams came true for a lot of directors, writers, and actors, but for far too many others it became a place where dreams and broken lives came to an end. Hollywood is no stranger to suicide. Thousands of performers have seen their careers ruined over the years by a fall from the public's good graces, caused by scandal or even crime. Or perhaps they just faded away, forgotten by the audiences that once loved them. The end of celebrity sometimes just becomes too much to face, and they take their own life. Sometimes the aftermath of a suicide temporarily restores the fallen star to the limelight, but this usually results in their death upstaging the talents they once possessed. They aren't remembered for what they used to be, they're remembered because they took their own life when Hollywood just became too much. But many more suicides occur because the victims never made it at all. Thousands came to Tinseltown in the early 1900s, hoping to make it big in the moving picture business. When they found failure instead of success, some chose not to keep looking, knowing they weren't destined for the wealth and celebrity enjoyed by others. In some cases, these failed actors and would-be starlets found fame and death that they never achieved in life. Like the one actress who used the most prominent symbol of Hollywood as a warning to those who came to the movie colony with big dreams of stardom. She used the Hollywood sign, and some say she's never left it. The Hollywood sign is perhaps the most famous sign in the world. Resting on Mount Lee and Griffith Park, it looms over Hollywood as a constant reminder of the past. The original sign was built in 1923 as a publicity ploy to encourage the sales of home in the Hollywood subdivision, which was located along Beachwood Canyon. Hollywood was in its infancy in those days and was being deluged from people from the East. They came looking for the fabled Ormgro... Oh, fuck. <clears throat> They came looking for the fabled orange groves and sunshine. And when they got there, well, they needed a place to live. Promoter and movie maker, Max Sinnott, wanted the Hollywoodland subdivision to provide that place. But like almost everything else in Tinseltown, the sign was merely a facade. The cheap construction was only designed to last for a year and a half. It cost $21,000 to build. And each of the letters was 30 feet wide and 50 feet high. The entire name was studded with low wattage light bulbs. that could be seen for miles. Well, in time, the sign fell into disrepair and the light bulbs burned out or were broken or were stolen by vandals. Maintenance of the sign was discontinued in 1939. Then in late 1944, the H. Sherman Company, who now own the old Hollywood Land subdivision, dumped 455 acres of land around Griffith Park on the city. The parcel of property contained the Hollywood Land sign. Well, in 1949, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce took over care of the weather-beaten old sign. They renovated it and rebuilt it and removed the land part of the sign so that it just read Hollywood. But the sign continued to deteriorate until the late 1970s when the old letters were replaced with new steel ones that continue to loom over the city today. Like the Chinese Theater, no matter whose name is on it, the sign is one of the most iconic landmarks of Hollywood. For film buffs, no journey to Southern California can be complete without a trip to view the sign. There's nothing quite like it in the world. But the sign was only nine years old when it got its first taste of death. On September 16, 1932, a young Hollywood hopeful took her own life by plunging to her death from the sign. Thanks to this, she became a symbol for Hollywood tragedy and failure, and yet she could have been one of the brightest stars of Tinseltown if she had just waited a little longer. Instead, on that terrible night, Lillian Millicent Peg Entwistle climbed up the slopes of Mount Lee with the glowing sign as her final destination. When she arrived, she scaled the heights of the giant letter H, and she jumped. Her body plunged down the side of the hill and broke on the ground below. As she'd planned, the fall killed her, leaving her body battered and bloody on the unforgiving earth. She was only 24 years old. Peg had been born in London, England in 1908. She grew up in an acting family, although little is known about her early life, save for the fact that her mother died when Peg was quite young. She left Peg's father alone to raise a daughter and two sons, Robert and Milton. A short time later, Peg's father packed up and moved the family to New York, where he started working in local theater. Unfortunately, tragedy struck again and Peg's father was run over by a truck on Park Avenue, ending his life. Robert and Milton were sent to Los Angeles to live with Harold Inwistle, their uncle, and Peg turned to the stage for solace. She made her acting debut in Hamlet when she was just 17 years old. To everyone's surprise, she became a bona fide star, loved by audiences, critics, and directors alike. There was no question about it, Peg was a knockout and possessed a gentle quality that won the hearts of just about everyone she ever worked with. She quickly became a Broadway star and a member of the New York Theater Guild. While working on Broadway, Peg met a fellow actor named Robert Keith, who was 10 years her senior. He was also a popular star and the two fell in love and got married. But the marriage soured quickly. During a visit to her mother-in-law's house, Peg noticed a photograph of a young boy on the fireplace mantel. She asked who he was and was informed that he was Robert's son from his first marriage. A son and a marriage she knew nothing about. Incidentally, that surprise stepson was future actor Brian Keith, star of the television show Family Affair and dozens of movies. Just weeks later, during a dinner party at their home, a police officer came to the door and demanded nearly $1,000 in back child support that Robert owed. Peg got the money together, but when she asked Robert about it, he became violent. The bad debts, the lies, the fights ended the marriage and they were soon divorced. Peg went back to the Broadway stage, but this part of her life was also coming to an end. The Great Depression had arrived and the majority of the public could no longer afford expensive theater tickets. Thanks to this, Peg's last seven New York shows bombed. But all wasn't lost. While Broadway may have been suffering, Hollywood was booming. During Peg's initial fame in New York, Hollywood was making the transition from silent films to talkies. Unfortunately, many of the silent film stars were just not cut out for talking roles and Hollywood producers looked to the stars of the New York stage to fill the acting rosters. Many other stage actors were making it big in Hollywood, so Peg packed up and took the train to California sure that greater fame and fortune waited for her on the West Coast. When she arrived, Peg moved into a Beechwood Canyon bungalow with her brothers and Uncle Harold. The house was located in the Hollywood Land subdivision, just under the towering sign where Peg would later take her life. Not long after she arrived in Hollywood, Peg found work in small theater. The first production she did was a play called Mad Hope starring Billy Burke, who would go on to play Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. Another performer in the show was a Hollywood newcomer named Humphrey Bogart. The play opened to decent reviews, but only lasted a week and a half. When the curtain fell, Peg saw it as another personal failure. She began to wonder if her New York jinx had followed her to Tinseltown. She went on to appear with Billy Burke and a few more small productions, although Bogart returned to New York. His days of fame and fortune were still to come. Well, thanks for her good looks and her popularity on Broadway, Peg landed a short-term contract with RKO Studios and landed a part in the film Thirteen Women. She knew that even though it was a small part, it would lead to other offers. It was only her first movie role, she realized, but little did she know, it would also turn out to be her last. During filming, Peg discovered the part was actually a supporting role, but at least it was a good one and her hopes began to rise. The movie was released only to be savaged by the critics. RKO quickly shelved it. It was released quietly a short time later, but substantial cuts had been made to the 73-minute running time. Peg's part, despite her good showing, had been reduced to little more than a cameo appearance. Once more, she was bitterly disappointed, but vowed not to let it get to her. She began answering ads for small parts and going to auditions and casting calls. However, Peg soon found that she was just another pretty face in a town filled with beautiful women. All of them had come to Hollywood for the same reason, to make it in show business. And then things went from bad to worse. Her option with RKO ran out and they declined to renew it. She was cut loose and on her own was unable to even find work in small theater. Soon promises of future work quickly vanished as her career fell apart. Her new friends made themselves scarce, not daring to be seen with a nobody in Hollywood. Peg, it the gorgeous young woman who'd shot to fame on Broadway had now fallen to the bottom of the Hollywood barrel. Her depression worsened when she was unable to scrape together even the train fare to go back to New York. She would never act again. On September 16th, Peg announced to her uncle Harold, she was going to take a walk. She was last seen alive heading down Beechwood Canyon toward Mount Lee. Peg made her way up the slope to the Hollywood sign where she took off her coat and folded it neatly. She placed it, along with her purse, at the base of the maintenance ladder that led up to the letter H. She climbed to the top and then plunged to her death. The next day, a young woman hiking in Griffith Park discovered the purse and coat near the ladder. She opened the purse and discovered a suicide note inside. It read simply, I am afraid I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. P.E. The hiker replaced the note and then in the early morning hours, placed the purse and coat on the doorstep of the Hollywood police station. Two days later, authorities discovered the body of Peg and Whistle in the brush at the bottom of Mount Lee. Unsure of her identity, the police ran a description of the woman along with the contents of the suicide note in the newspaper. They were quickly contacted by Peg's Uncle Harold, who had been frantically searching for his niece. She had been missing since she left for her walk several evenings before. He feared the worst when he saw the initials attached to the end of the note, and not long after, he identified the body as that of his niece Peg. Soon after, an ironic event occurred. The kind of event that usually only seems to happen in the movies. Two days later, Uncle Harold was sifting through the afternoon mail and he discovered a letter that had been mailed to Peg the day before she jumped to her death. The letter was from a Beverly Hills playhouse and had been written to offer her the lead role in their next production. The part they wanted her to play was that of a beautiful young woman who commits suicide. This might have been Peg's big chance, but we'll never really know. But death was not the last act for Peg Entwistle. In the years following, her suicide hikers and park rangers in Griffith Park told of strange happenings in the vicinity of the Hollywood sign. Many reported sightings of a woman dressed in 1930s era clothing who abruptly vanished when approached. She was described as a very attractive blonde woman who seemed very sad. Could this be Peg's ghost still making her presence known? Could she also be linked to the pungent smell of gardenia perfume that has been known to overwhelm sightseers in the park? Perhaps it is, as the gardenia scent was known to be Peg's trademark perfume. What could have made Peg Entwistle choose to end her life in such a dramatic and violent way? And from the Hollywood sign itself. Well, we'll probably never know, but one thing is clear. It's been said that the Hollywood sign stands as a symbol of hope, so that those who answer the siren call of Hollywood will know that anything in the city is possible. But did Peg glimpse that sign one evening after spending the day going from one pointless casting call to another, and see it not as a symbol of hope, but one of despair? Did she feel that the sign was mocking her, laughing that so many others had made it in the movie, so why couldn't she? Did his glowing lights remind reminder of why she'd come to Hollywood, chasing the bright lights she'd never catch up to? Or perhaps she just wanted to go out in a way that, well, people would always remember. And if this was the case, she was right. Most people would have never have heard of Peg Inwhistle if not for the fact she took that fatal plunge from the very symbol of Hollywood itself. Like far too many Hollywood hopefuls whose life ended in tragedy, Peg gained much more fame in death than she ever did. Okay, that's where it sounds good. I can hear myself, so. Dope. All right.
1: You ready? Sure. Yeah. Whenever you are. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now kicking off season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor.
0: Hey, hooray for Hollywood.
1: Hooray for Hollywood. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. I'm excited for this one. I am too. I am I mean, too. I think, that, um, I think a lot of people are when we've announced it, when we announced it last week or so Mm -hmm. um and i think people are excited about it i am too a bunch of people guessed it too i think we gave yeah i know i kept uh, hiding their comments because they kept posting their comments they don't know that their comments were hidden but they were um but yeah i think we just kind of gave it away a little bit but that's okay yeah it's all right i was happy that people were happy yeah um
1: And, you know, you've told me that you mapped out a lot of episodes for this. um, (laughs) Yeah. And I don't exactly know. I have no idea when
0: this will end. Um, We say that at the beginning of every season, though. Yeah. I really don't know when this is going to end. And this one is is currently mapped out to be our longest season so far. And everyone knows I tend to
1: make episodes
0: as we go. I usually don't take any away. No, um, so in fact after I made the list I added an episode. So and I'd already printed out the list and deleted it. So I just had to write it in. I'm uh, sure you'll
1: split so, some of those into like two part or three. And I've got
0: some split into two, but yeah, I I can for, I foresee a problem with that in the future. Yeah. So we'll we'll face that, you know, yeah. as we come to it. Yeah. Well what's been going on, man? What do we got well, coming up? Um well summer's over essentially. Um because Labor Day weekend is coming up this, this coming week. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's going to be, uh, I mean, I know it's, that's an unofficial end to summer, but let's be honest, summer's over. Sure. Kids are going back to school, pool closed, killing people. So, yeah. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, well, we hope not anyway, Strap but in, folks, I know. Um, well, and that's, that's the thing that I keep harping about Halloween and how we all have to do our part, but I'm not sure it's going to matter if they, Put all these kids back in school yeah. and just spread stuff around but you know i'll say the same thing i always say that don't tell me you're excited about halloween if you won't wear a mask and i don't mean a michael myers mask right, i right. mean a, a mask to protect everybody because you know i mean it can be done mm-hmm. but. You know, people who don't, because, you know, they're not going to do what anyone tells them to do. You can't tell me. You're just going to ruin it for everybody.
1: I know. I want to go trick-or-treating.
0: Yeah. Well, I just want to be able to (laughs) do all the stuff that we've got planned. Yeah, that too. So, uh, help us out of here, guys. That's all we're asking. Just... Help us out. Wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance. Really, that's the big thing. Stay the hell out of the goddamn bars. Yeah. You know, I mean, go to a bar, but man, don't crowd. That's the the thing that's killing me here, is watching or going and seeing all these people packed into bars and stuff. But anyway, whatever. Um, We've got a lot of great stuff planned for fall. And so hopefully, you know, we get to have it. You know, our Alton tours are on sale now. Our River Road tours, we literally have one tour left. The others are all sold out. Nice. Um, You know, we've got uh, all of our dinners have been moved here to the Best Western Premiere, where we usually record these podcasts. Mm -hmm. And um, we we did move those away from the Mineral Springs just because we can limit the group sizes here a little bit better. We can spread out social distance a little better. It's a little, um, you know, a little more healthier, sanitary. Don't have to move the food around. Uh, plus, there's a, a full bar right next to the ballroom, which is always a plus. Yep. So, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, we've got um, all of that stuff coming up. Check out Altonhauntings.com for anything we've got coming up in the Alton area for this fall. Uh, we've also got ghost hunts and overnights all around the Midwest. Um, coming up this fall. And those are great because they're all small groups anyway. Mm-hmm. So it makes it really easy to social distance for these events yeah. at different locations. Um, and that's at ghosthunts.net. You can check that out. So. Are
1: you going back to Velisca? This year? Um,
0: not 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 this year. Mm. I don't know about next spring yet. We we're not sure. Okay. Um, everything's still a little up in the air. Mm. Uh, we've been talking about the one thing that we are planning, and probably before our next episode, we may have some of the more information about it posted on the website. But we're talking about how we're going to do Dead of Winter this year because it's going to be in February. I believe it's the sixth and we, um, it's gonna be different than how it normally is. Mm-hmm. We're, we're gonna have it here at the Best Western Premier and it's gonna be a little different. We're still gonna have it, you know, one part of it is gonna be free like always, but we have to limit the number of people that can be in, mm-hmm. but we'll have the vendors and we're gonna have a, ro- a steady rotation of speakers throughout the day, but we're also going to have a VIP event too, okay. where it's a ticketed price with a portion of the proceeds going to uh, the food drive the right, same way right. we always do. And that will be um, a daytime thing with uh, a couple of different uh, presentations, a uh, live recording of the podcast and uh, a lunch, a catered buffet lunch as well. So. There's going to be, and we're going to do some after-hour stuff and that kind of thing too. So, we're hoping to get all that together in the next week or so. So we'll get that posted, so people will see what's coming up. But then, you know, as far as the spring goes, we're kind of going to have to wait and see. But Got it. Well, that's anyway, cool. I was really yeah.
1: worried I wouldn't be able to get into that VIP section, but yeah. now I think now, I, now, I now you know you can. So yeah. so
0: yeah, but anyway, you can just check out the website AmericanHauntings.net. That's where all the details are for pretty much everything. We'll get you there one way or another. So, so awesome. that's what's going on. That's all you got? Yep, that's all I got for okay,
1: now. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. we've had um, a little bit of time off, not really too much, but uh, we've got some new listener reviews um, in that time. So this one is from Nanners, it's called Love This Pod. It says, what a treat to get ghost stories told along with their historical context. Unlike a lot of historical pods, there's just, seem like, oh, just seems like you're hanging out with some dudes learning about history. I highly recommend the New Orleans series. I binged it, and now I'm sad that I'm caught up. Keep up the awesome job, guys. Thank you for that. This next one's from, oh boy, T.R. Biggs1965. Just says, awesome podcast. Uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying the New Orleans season. The city has a special place in my heart. I'm currently listening to the first season. I was expecting a train wreck, but it's not as bad as you guys make it out to be. (laughs) The only issue is the music that sounds like it was produced on a Casio keyboard. Guess I'm spoiled (laughs) with season four. I look forward to season five. Uh, I don't know if it was a Casio, but it was definitely <laughs> some
0: kind of keyboard, some kind
1: of keyboard. Um, <laughs> that was just I went into the studio with a lighthouse sounds with Charlie Rockus yep. and I was like, play me something spooky. Anything. Yeah, yeah, anything. And yeah. Um, we just kind of ran with it. And like I, I ended up like putting all that together we've with tried like, to get, sound effects. We've tried and,
0: to get more themed to our season yes. since then. Um, well, at least with. Uh, Velisca and, and New Orleans, especially yeah, yeah. in this season, too. We tried to get a little bit more of a Yeah,
1: theme. maybe before so. it was just like spooky. Whatever, just yeah. do something. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but thank you for that. And then this last one is from uh, Jan Jen2796 The Supernatural History I Wish They Taught in School. This show is so full of information, sometimes corrected from the version you learn in the history books. Cody and Troy have a great, playful friendship. Oh, that's nice. Um, which makes listening that much more fun. Thanks for fixing the audio, guys. You're very welcome. Uh, but I still go back and listen to the first season. The show is just that great. Troy, you should record your own audio books. Love no. your work, but not, in this, not the same in someone else's voice. Keep it up. Wish you could put up uh, more episodes more frequently. But I know you both have a lot of irons in the fire. Love the New Orleans tales. Maybe Savannah or St. Augustine next. Keep up the good work. Uh, so thank you for that. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I like your voice, but I hear it enough.
0: Um, uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I don't want to listen to it. But, um, and, man, if you just listen to that podcast, or the, the, the audio book. The audiobook, he's got a good voice. He's got a good voice. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Well, thank you for that. Um, are you ready to dive in? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about... Uh, the wonder city of the west uh, so the downside seemed few but deadly there were wildfires earthquakes and mudslides but on the bright <laughs> side they reminded the residents that little here was permanent yeah.
0: so, nothing's changed much yeah, so right. as we as we record this uh california is again on fire it's always on fire it's always on fire, yeah. on fire it seems like you yeah know, either that or half of it slid off into the ocean
1: yeah so. it seems like la like when you were talking about it it seems to remind me a little bit of new orleans just like bad things yep. just constantly over and and over. happening yeah. over and over again so the once sleepy span mission had been stolen from its rightful Mexican owners during the American quest for Manifest Destiny. Eastern newspapers promised sunshine, warm weather, easy living, and of course an elusive fortune that could be obtained in the California gold fields. uh, What many of the immigrants found instead was poverty and death. And so it's dubbed the City of Angels by the original founders, uh, and I like this is an interesting thing. All the crime and lack of court resources forced the formation of <laughs> vigilante committees. Uh-huh. But can we talk about some of these? Sure. Um, sure. 1854 LA Rangers are which formed,
0: are the hockey team. Yeah, but, right. Which I'm, I'm thinking probably weren't named after these guys. I don't know. Maybe I was they wondering were. That. Right? I wondered it too. Yeah. And as I was putting that together, I thought. Is this where they got the name for the hockey team? Because these were not good guys. Right, I mean, right. they were, you know, they were just like hanging people for the hell of it. So, yes. you know, um, but whatever. Uh, maybe, maybe it is. And I don't know. It's California. It right? It's crazy. So,
1: And then we have, um, uh, we have Home Guard, a paramilitary group of bloodthirsty citizens, uh, which is just a strange sentence to say. And then El Monte Rangers, a group of Texas immigrants who specialize in killing Mexicans. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a really batshit crazy Place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, it's, and it and hasn't. Nothing changed. ever
0: changed. I mean, it's it's always been like that. So yeah.
1: You said vigilantes were tasked with clearing up the town, ta- cleaning up the town. Suspects, usually Mexican, were dragged from their homes for jail cells and even from churches. Then beaten, horsewhipped, tortured, mutilated, castrated, hanged from the nearest tree. In 1854 alone, 22 men were victims of one vigilante group or another.
0: I mean <laughs> wh- well when, and when you're talking about a population in the hundreds at the time 22 people's is quite a it's a, a, it's a
1: yeah. lot yeah so yeah. I mean if, I guess eventually they just they can't have this like lawlessness go on anymore and they or they get resources to build legit like yeah eventually they,
0: yeah eventually they got a real police department and you know a county sheriff's department and that kind of
1: thing it just takes people being drugged from churches yeah
0: pretty much hanged pretty in much. trees
1: yeah. uh well let's go to chinatown so 1871 chinese and mexican immigrants are competing for jobs and there are two chinese rival gangs that emerged the hong chows and nin sorry if i'm mispronouncing things um eventually a riot ensues Nobody knows exactly how it gets started. Might have been because of a crooked cop, uh, but either way, a mob descended into Chinatown, and then nineteen men were dead in the aftermath. One hundred and fifty-six people are indicted; uh, six are jailed, but then they're
0: all released. Yeah, due to lack of evidence, because you know it's Chinatown, Jake. Uh, you still haven't seen that movie. No, so I have no idea. What you you're talking need about. to watch. You need to watch the movie. It has nothing to do with this, but mm-hmm. everything about Chinatown is a mystery. Okay. So watch, watch Chinatown with. Jack Nicholson. Uh, trust me, it is a very worthy two hours. OK, you will love it. It's a great movie. All right. Fair enough. Um, let's
1: move on. Talk about uh, L.A. and access to water. So that becomes a big issue. Um, scam artists, con men, nutcases flock to the city. <laughs> L.A. was truly born at the beginning of the automobile age, which created a boomtown. And everything about Hollywood seemed larger than life, which I mean, that's still true right, to this day. Exactly. That's what they sell it on. That's
0: what. Yeah, that's how it was created.
1: He said the city within a city had seemingly come from nowhere to become one of the most recognizable places on earth. Um, the name Hollywood. So I didn't realize it was
0: Hollywood Land at first. Um, well, it, I mean, it wasn't. The town wasn't Hollywood Land. Right, just but that the housing project was, and that's that's where the sign came from. Sure. Originally, yeah. Sure. So,
1: um, so it might have come from the ample stands of holly that covered the hillsides. Or um, the name Hollywood was coined by H. J. Whitley, the man considered the father of Hollywood. He and his wife Gigi allegedly came up with the name while on their honeymoon. I don't know how you do that, but I guess they're creative people. Um, (laughs) Might have come from a real estate developer, uh, Harvey Wilcox's wife. However it was started, it became popular thanks to filmmaker Mac Sinnott, who created a low-cost subdivision called Hollywoodland. But eventually, like you said, I I guess I never really thought about it so much, but, like, yeah, it's, it's a desert out there. You need water. Right. And that can just, like whole a town hostage, I guess, so the yeah. city gets annexed. Right,
0: um, Hollywood. Yeah, and really early too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that Hollywood was only about ten years old when it stopped being a town, because we all think of it as a its separate town, and it's not.
1: I think I thought it was its own town yeah, well, until most like people, ten yeah, years. ago, Most probably. people
0: do. They think it's they think it's a separate town from LA, but um, you know, it started out that way, but it didn't stay that way for very long because they just. It wasn't really well planned in the first place, you know. It didn't and then, sound like it. No, not at all. Uh, mostly, I mean, most everything that was there was simply for the purpose of trying to get people to buy property. Mm-hmm. There. Um, that's why they put in the hotel, and you know, one of the first laws they had was you can only you could had to drive you could only if you're going to drive cattle through the middle of town had to be 200 head or less. I mean, that's, that was what What? this town, why? well, because it would stir up too much dust. Oh, So you didn't want more cows than that coming through the middle of town. Got it. That's that's how you know this was not really a well-planned community. Sure. And if it wasn't for the streetcar line and it wasn't for, you know, um, LA just annexing the city pretty Mm -hmm. much by vote. you know, I don't, who knows? Hollywood may have never have taken off the way that it did. Yeah. Well, and certainly if it wasn't for the movie studios, you know, that right. movie companies to start with that, founded everything there right
1: yeah and we'll get there too sure so as hollywood uh, begins to thrive in 1900 by 1910 the town voted to be annexed by la like we mm-hmm. talked about because of the water supply uh the main streets renamed hollywood boulevard um you you took a stab here at uh, edison and some copyright issues right <laughs> what's yeah. that what's that all about
0: well um you know the, i think we've talked about this before that you know we can admire thomas edison for his his genius mm-hmm. and his ingenuity creating light bulbs and all of the other things he created but um anyone who had to deal with him would talk about what an asshole he was yeah. um and what a horrible horrible man that he was but anyway after he invented essentially invented the or someone who worked for him invented the motion picture camera and then of course the though um, a way to show those motion pictures back he clamped down on all the copyrights on it, and then wouldn't let anyone else use it. He had his own movie company, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't want other people copying his designs. Well, of course, everyone did. Sure. And so to keep people from doing that, he was suing everybody. Well, this was about the time people were finding these, you know, the the new movie system and the way to watch movies and make movies, and people wanted to go and see them. They wanted to go to Nickelodeon and watch a movie. but. They needed someone to keep making them. Well, Edison obviously wasn't making enough of them himself. Sure. So other people started doing it using that equipment. But Edison then would sue them. So with the movie companies all in New York and New Jersey at the time, they decided they needed to get away from Edison, mm-hmm. get out from under his thumb. So they moved to Chicago first. Um, and a lot of movie studios set up on the north side of Chicago. In fact, some of the buildings like s are still there. You can still see the outside of the building where the studio was mm-hmm. and, um, you know, places like the Green Mill in Chicago. A lot of the Western actors used to ride their horses down there to drink because it was started out as a roadhouse. Okay. I mean, now it's in the city, but at the time yeah. it was on the edge of town. and so. But then Edison came after him in Chicago, too. Besides that, the weather sucks. Yes. And so it really limited on how long they could make movies and how many they could make. Well, about this time, you know, L.A. is starting to boom and Hollywood has gotten started. And it seemed like, you know, it might be something worth exploring. So the biograph company sent uh, D.W. Griffith out there, who, of course, went on to this you know, huge career is one of the great filmmakers of all time, but he went out there with just a bunch of actors and they made a few movies and it worked and the weather was great. And so, you know, people started to get excited and finally they came back and other studios started to send people out there The Centaur was one of the first, but I mean, they're long gone, no one's ever heard of them. But mm-hmm. they made a lot of low-budget silent westerns. And we'll we'll talk a lot more about studios Yeah. Um, in episode three. Um, it's going to be planned out. We're going to talk about some of the – how the studios got started and a lot of the haunted studios that are still out there. But, um, I mean, that's what put Hollywood on the map were these movie companies who went west to get – mostly to get away from Edison. That's you know, funny. Yeah, so – so it was I, a little different back then. You could go to the other side of the country you and, far enough away. and you could just go far enough away and then lawyers couldn't find you as easy. So, right. you know, um,
1: so I've never I've never been to California, um, never really? been to L.A. No kidding. Um, somebody I did read a meme the other day, though, that said L.A. is like a really hot girl that's just constantly having a meltdown. Like, yeah, that's is that accurate? accurate? Yeah, okay. that's pretty accurate. That's that's what I thought. It's
0: a great it's if especially like you are and the way that you love movies and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. It's one of those things you need to see at least once in your life. Sure. You need to go, you know, see some of the studios and and see, uh, you know, see Santa Monica Pier, see the Chinese Theater, the mm-hmm. Hollywood sign. I mean, see the things that are you the, know, touristy, the stuff. touristy stuff. The touristy stuff. Because if you love movies, it's 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 something that you should experience. Yeah. I always tell everybody: if you really love movies, go to you know Hollywood Forever Cemetery or whatever it's called now. It's so, been so many different names just in my lifetime. Oh, yeah. but yeah. Um, all of the, the, the old screen greats are mm-hmm. buried there. The directors and some, and we'll talk more about Hollywood. Uh, we'll definitely talk more about Hollywood forever. Cause they really embrace the whole movie. Th- I mean, they show movies there mm-hmm. in the cemetery and oh, stuff. Nice. It's pretty cool. Projected so on a mausoleum uh, yeah, or a, something. Projected on the main building. Though. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. But yeah, so, I mean, and we'll, we'll talk about all those kinds of things, but yeah, if you ever get a chance, like especially like for work or something, mm-hmm. if you're going out, it's it's worth the trip. Okay. It's a fantastic place to visit. Yeah. All of California is. To visit. To visit. Okay. I would not want to live there ever, but it's a great place to visit.
1: Fair enough. Well, you said Hollywood became a place where dreams came true for a lot of directors, writers, and actors, but for far too many others, it became a place where dreams and broken lives came to an end. Let's talk about Suicide and the sign. So, in <laughs> some cases, these failed actors and would-be starlets found fame in death that they never achieved in life, which happens far too often. The Hollywood sign, so it's built in 1923 as a publicity ploy, like you said, to kind of market that housing development. Only cost, well, I guess it cost $21,000. Well, but it's quite a bit then, of money back, back then. then. Right. And then each of the letters was 30 feet wide and 50 feet high, um, which I've always wondered, never enough to actually Google it, but I always wondered, like, <laughs> how big are those letters? Um
0: but I'd be curious as to how they are now, but. Well, they're about the same size. Yeah. Um, they're just made out of steel. Now. Sure. Uh, once so. they, once they renovated it. And I didn't go into great detail here because I really wanted to get to the story. But yes. I mean, there's a lot more to that thing. I mean, it, it literally by the seventies was falling down. Yeah. Yeah. I've I mean, it was pictures. completely rotted and falling over and stuff. And they um, actually got, um, you know, people just regular people and actors and studios and all kinds of things to donate money Mm. to rebuild the sign. And then they built it out of steel. And now it's, you know, it's not going anywhere. It gets taken care of. Right,
1: right, right. right. And so it's only nine years old when it gets its first taste of death. So this is September 16th, 1932. Lillian Millicent Peg... Entwistle. Entwistle. Peg Entwistle. Jumps from the age to her death at 24 years old. So... A little bit more about her. Both her parents had passed away. She became a Broadway star. Went into a bad marriage. Broadway was kind of suffering, but Hollywood's booming. So she- now,
0: do you know who Brian Keith is? No, okay, I mean, I, so you, you, I said Robert Keith was the guy that she was married to, but the, the, the secret son was was Brian Keith, mm-hmm. and you probably don't. I mean, I, I mean, it. I wasn't alive for it either, but I saw it on reruns when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Family affair with, uh, Mr. French. And Mr. Jody, French. Jody, and Buffy—they were the two kids. And then there no. was like the hot teenage daughter that was their cousin or something. I, I, you have my attention. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what the whole family relationship there was, but I believe he was their uncle. Mm-hmm. Mr. French was the butler. That's and Mr. French the butler. Sounds Cabot, right. Yeah, Sebastian Cabot, who did the voice of. Did you see the animated Jungle Book? We're going to be doing this. I can tell already we're going to be doing this all season. Yeah. Did you see the animated Jungle Book? Yes, Have you I, seen I remember. Okay, that. So yeah. you remember... Uh Shere Khan, the tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's Sebastian Cabot's voice. Okay. So he's a he was a British actor, big kind of a big guy oh, with yeah, big, yeah, dark yeah. hair and a beard. Okay. Um he was like the uh, the kindly butler. Mm-hmm. And then there was um Sissy. Sissy was the, the Sissy. she was the she was the teenage uh, daughter, I believe, of the uncle. Whatever his name was, and then the two little kids. But she had the the Mrs. Beasley doll. Do you remember? Have you ever seen Mrs. pictures? I, Beasley I'll, doll. I'll Google that. But M- Mrs. Beasley was a doll and mm-hmm. it became really popular um, I have no during idea. the time Family Affair was out. See, I learned so much. I know. But yeah, it's um, let's see. Let me. I'm going to pull this up since. I mean if only we had a device this that is allow an, us to link this to the is an audio internet. medium so, but yeah i know i meant for you <laughs> I know, um I know. so well yeah but then i could remember what his name was in the show yeah, i'm just giving you shit. so uh, uh family affair brian keith there's somebody uh, in their car well, there's, screaming this, there's at the there's there's mr french there hmm. sebastian cabot and i'll show you brian keith but he uncle bill that's it uncle bill um that's that's another oh, picture of him. Okay. He, he was in a lot of stuff. Fair I mean, he was in lots relay. and lots of things. But so, you know, I I, I can tell. I'm going to be doing this all season mm-hmm. going, oh, and they were in this movie. And then you're going to look at me blankly. Yeah, um, Hey, but, I'm fine with that. Um, but that's okay. Because uh, a lot of people listening are watched Family Affair when they were kids. So I watched it in reruns, you know, unlike <laughs> probably Renee, who saw it when it was on originally. <laughs> oh, so.
1: okay. Shots fired at Renee. <laughs> Um. So she finds work, but things aren't really going that well. Uh, you said Peg soon found out that she was another pretty face in a town filled with beautiful women. All of them have come to Hollywood for the same reason, to make it into show business. So she decides um, she's going to go out for a walk, I think she tells her family. And then she takes off her coat and her purse and folds them up. That's Peg. Oh, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I, did, I did you look her up? Yeah, I looked yeah, her up. She was
0: She was pretty. Yeah, she was very pretty.
1: Um, And then she climbs up the service ladder to the H and swan dives off, I guess. Um, Hiker finds her purse and her coat near the ladder on the H. And inside was a suicide note that read, I am afraid. I'm a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. Dot, 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 P.E. So they go turn that in and then to the police. And then two days later, uh, the police find her body. So two days later, um, this is kind of a, the weird
0: yeah. ending of it. Well, that's what I said It's this is the kind of thing that would only happen in a movie, it re- but it actually happened. Right. So, so. Yeah, a few days
1: later, her uncle finds a letter from Beverly Hills Playhouse offering Peg the lead role in their next production. She would have been playing a young woman who commits suicide. Um, so that's yeah, – who knows? Could have been her big yeah, break or – Could have been. Whatever. And then uh, her ghost is often seen by hikers and park rangers in Griffith Park. Um, I actually was talking to somebody that was there yesterday. And, really? And I was like – hey you want to hear a crazy story and she's like you you can't tell me this stuff i get too scared and i was like if you see a young woman in 1930s attire i was like just try to get a picture or something you know um just messing with her but yeah so so you've been out to the sign i'm guessing oh sure um never seen anything crazy no
0: but and you know you can see the sign from anywhere in hollywood hills so what you just want to do is get a place where you can get it as a backdrop behind. well yeah because the the
1: trail's closed right now unfortunately so i can only get so close right um, but uh, never saw never saw anything crazy out there, huh? No, well, yeah, n- I mean, well, that, not, not that at the Hollywood <laughs> <laughs> sign.
0: No ghosts at the Hollywood sign. No, so.
1: Well, that's a tragic story, a
0: tragic end to. Yeah, probably a pretty typical story, which I think was a, a good way to kick off the season with yeah. the story of you know, of broken dreams in Hollywood. So because there'll be plenty more to come.
1: I mean, I can't imagine. She can't be the only person that's done that. No, there have been
0: others since then, Mm -hmm. uh, but she was the first. Gotcha. And so she really made, obviously made a name for herself Mm -hmm. by doing it. And, um, you know, and it just became one of those stories of, uh, you know, a girl who had such promise Mm -hmm. and, you know, then took her own life because, you know, it's symbolic of... All of these other actresses that, that came to Hollywood during, and probably still, you know, uh, we've all seen the you know Guns and Roses video, Welcome to the Jungle. You nope, know, nope. we we know that there are with all the song, these people but... that you know came to Hollywood and ended up in a bad place. But um, it's it's still going on. But mm-hmm. you know, back in those days, it seemed like something that was possible mm-hmm. more so than now. Sure. I think. Uh, because everything was so wide open back then, you know they were looking for people, um, especially people like Peg, who was a stage actress, and you know she was right there at the perfect time because you know they found out that a lot of these people, you know, Gloria Swanson, Theda Barra people like that, who had been doing silent films that were huge stars, sounded awful. Oh yeah, you know when they <laughs> then they realized that people didn't want silent movies anymore. It's like you know that was that was the equivalent. For you, this will be the equivalent of changing—oh boy—changing oh boy. changing from VHS to DVDs. People didn't want VHS tapes. Yeah, that's okay. That's fair. And uh, it was the same kind of thing. I mean, people wanted something new, and they wanted they could see a stage play where people talked. Why not a movie? And people wanted sound. Yeah. And so then they tried to transition a lot of these people over in it. <laughs> it just wasn't work. working you know you get these brooklyn accents and stuff mm-hmm. that you know people are not wanting to hear coming through the speakers at the theater and um she should have been she should have been a star but it just didn't work out for her. And it, it still could have, but she just had given up. But, yeah. I mean, you have to look at the other stuff that had happened to her already. The you parents know, dying. The parents and dying moving. and the you know the moving around and then getting out to California and, and losing out parts and getting cut from films. And, you know, her RKO contract didn't get renewed. And I think she was just, you know, hitting rock bottom at that yeah. point. And it just was too much to take. Yeah. You know, it just, it happens. And it happens in... Hollywood and L.A. a lot more than other places because mm-hmm. it's a place that is built up in the minds of people as this, you know, shining place to go and to make your dreams come true. And then you get there and you find out that that's not how it works. Just devastated. You know? Yeah. You know, it's just like all the, you know, the Harvey Weinstein casting couch stuff Mm -hmm. that's been going on forever yeah i mean as and we'll get to that believe me we're going to get to that as the season goes on not harvey weinstein so we doing an episode on casting no we're not but it'll it'll it's stuff that's going to come up because that's been going on forever and um so it's not to me it's always a surprise that not that there aren't more people that have given up and jumped off the hollywood sign or something you know with the things that have people have had to put up with Mm-hmm. in Hollywood yeah. over the years. Yeah, so, I mean I imagine especially young women I'm sure. Yeah. Um Yeah, there's a lot of depraved stuff yeah. that went on in Hollywood. Well, I'm sure it still, still does, does, but a lot of things that went on years and years ago that you would not expect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that's going to make it into the episodes. I mean, it's it's going to happen. Yeah. So so, wait, this is going to be our
1: first, like, depressing season where all the other well, ones have I, been so... Oh, yeah, because they've all been jo- so upbeat. upbeat. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder which letter I would climb on top. I guess maybe she did the H just because it had the
0: ladder, but I don't know. You know, I think there are other ones with ladders. So. You think? Well, I don't know. Those were the right the uh, original letters. So, so who it's knows? it's hard to say. So Hmm.
1: I don't know. I'm partial to the O. I don't know. Anyway, okay, so it's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American Podcast at gmail.com Our first email comes to us from Paula, and it's titled Haunted Denver. It said, I recently found your podcast, and I'm loving it. I love uh, the history that is given along with the haunting details. I try to go on as many ghost tours as possible and enjoy the history portion of those, too. That being said, Denver would be a great location for a season of the show. Put aside the Stanley Hotel. It's like an hour away. Look at Cheeseman Park, the Botanic Gardens, the Haunted Firehouse Museum, uh, the Denver Press Club, Union Station, Market Street, and of course the Spider Man House. Uh, you have my attention. Uh, so much to look into. Keep up the great work. So thank you. What do you, you like yeah, Denver?
0: Yeah, I do. I, uh, do. I like and, Denver. You know, we may get there at some point.
1: I wonder what. So the... I just
0: put a big chapter about Cheeseman Park in the. Um, in the Boneyard book, oh yeah, that's one I did. Yeah,
1: nice. Yeah. I'm curious about what the Spider-Man house
0: is because yeah, I have that a, I'm not a Marvel shirt with. on yeah. right now. Yeah. I'm 31 years old. I don't think Spider-Man's on your shirt, is he?
1: No, he's not. But no.
0: well, wait, oh, he is. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's at the bottom. Oh, I'll be darn Yeah. Okay.
1: Anyway, um, okay. This next <laughs> one is from Tanya. Uh, okay, I'm not exactly sure about this one it's titled steve carell lol so i'm glad to know that i'm not the only one that thinks troy sounds like steve carell sad he isn't going to read his book though he's very nice uh, voice to read stories did do we talk about you sounding like steve so, carell? yeah a
0: while back somebody else said that okay it was in a review or something so.
1: i was thinking about it and i don't know i think i need to like close my eyes and like yes I, I don't something.
0: know I, I don't hear that but um i mean i guess it could be worse but oh yeah i mean i i don't hear it but Uh, there have been a number of people who have said that
1: that's really funny um okay anyway uh, we have a couple new patrons uh this month too that i wanted to give a shout out to so thank you to amanda and megan for supporting the show that's all i got cool all right we're done sure is that just how we do this now isn't that how we normally do it? Like we're just we're I just, rewrote we, this
0: fucking thing. We just cut it, it out. Shorter, I know so. you did.
1: Okay. Um, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written long, by Troy but. Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. The show airs every other week offering history, hauntings, folklore, legends, and the truth as we uh, look into America's darkest out. corners. Check out the website at American for show notes, more info about the episodes and links to more from American Hauntings. See, you, you did make this shorter. Yeah, I did. It's more I, concise. It's yeah, it
0: is just a little more concise. Yeah, because
1: so American Hauntings is just a podcast it's books and tours and events and more and our main website is americanhauntings.net and if you want even more from us you can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon I did
0: not make this part shorter you can because I really want people show. to follow T-shirts, us on Patreon discounts so. great
1: stuff in the mail and more thanks to our supporters we've upgraded our equipment for the show and with Very your true. continued, fact, continued case, help we were from just you,
0: discussing that before we started because we can the, old, more time the old and machine that we had used to have to bounce more shows in the future. everything off an SD card which is why it sounded so bad in those early episodes plus we also didn't realize that machine um, the microphones didn't work take a it.
1: minute and check it out oh, you're not wanting like me to tell that it because that Patreon. was you that I didn't know. American
0: Hauntings. Anyway, be sure to get whatever. in
1: touch if you have any comments about the show's suggestions reviews jokes or just want to tell us what you really think of us we're reachable via email on Twitter Instagram Facebook and by carrier pigeon telegram telegram Candygram singing Hollywood telegram until next time. (laughs) Goodbye. So long. See you later.